tonight's show comes with a warning. Dorky content ahead. Now, some might argue that all Circus Sunday Night episodes should come with this warning, but I don't know. I think this one is dorkier than most. We're going to take a peek into the exciting world of vintage school materials. Yes, you heard me correctly. These are the materials that were used in classrooms to shape the youth of yesteryear and prepare them to inherit the world. Okay, so this may not be everybody's cup of tea, but it is my cup of tea. Hey, I was a teacher once, and I made a very long career in the field of learning and development and instructional design. Can I help it if I find textbooks and teachers' manuals as fascinating as other people find, oh, I don't know, blockbuster movies or true crime podcasts? Well, no, I cannot. So here we are. Tonight, I bring you along as I unbox a 1969 SRA reading laboratory kit that's in near-mint condition. Yeah, I know you don't know what that is. Never fear, we'll get to it later. We then revisit what's surely one of the wackiest school films ever made, one that features some trippy magic pancakes. We wrap up our old-school tour by learning how to choose television programs from a 1955 textbook in my collection. But wait, there's more. We learn about birthstones in tonight's show. We pay homage to willow trees in song, and we continue our F. Scott Fitzgerald story in the Vintage Century reading room. Are you still willing to tune in? Well, hey, then you're my kind of person. Cue the theme song. there. This is Jennifer Passarello from Circa19XX.com. Welcome to Circa Sunday Night. Why don't you put on your flapper dress and a long strand of pearls and let's Charleston our way to Dreamsville. Hey, this show is the cure for insomnia. This show is Circa Sunday Night. Greetings to you. I'm so glad you're here. How was your weekend? I'll tell you what, I've been a little bit stressed. I needed this weekend to recover. Olive was really sick this week. She had pancreatitis, and if you've got a dog and you've you know, your dog has had pancreatitis, you know that that is a rather messy illness. I'll kind of leave it right there, but you can use your imagination. There was a lot of cleanup associated with this sickness. But of course, the worst part of it was the suffering. You know, you don't want to see your little dog suffer. 
And then the next worst thing was the medication. So giving pills to a dog is always a challenge, but when your dog has no appetite and therefore you can't, you know, hide a pill in a hot dog or something like that because they have no interest in the hot dogs, that's when things get pretty grisly. So there were a few wrestling matches, you know, when when a dog won't take a pill and you have to force that pill, oh, it's bad. I just I just hate that so much. You have to open their jaw and you have to cram that pill down their little throat. And oh, I hate that. There were some wrestling matches with me and Olive and she ended up traumatized. I ended up in tears. It was just a bad situation. But things are looking up now. She's eating. She's taking her pills like a charm. And uh, life goes on. a lovely afternoon out on the deck today. I was reading. Olive was watching the golf carts go by. I love going out there in the warm months. You know, that is a perfect reading spot. There's usually a nice breeze that comes by, and it's just so relaxing. Now, I started reading a novel by Shirley Jackson called The Road Through the Wall, which I think was her first book. You probably know of Shirley Jackson, even if the name isn't familiar. Did you ever read the story, The Lottery, in school? If so, I bet you remember it. (laughs) This is the one about the idyllic little community that has a lottery. And the winner, winner in air quotes, gets to be stoned to death by their neighbors. Yeah, that's the one. Remember that one? That is often anthologized in textbooks. Because, of course, kids would be fascinated with that story. But anyway, she's the one that wrote that. But she also wrote other stories as well. I think she wrote around 200 stories. She wrote a handful of novels. One of those novels that you've probably heard, or maybe you've um, seen the movie, because I think there's been a couple of versions of uh, this uh, book on film, The Haunting of Hill House. She wrote that. And uh, she also wrote... (laughs) what is probably the weirdest novel I've ever read. It's a book called We Have Always Lived in the Castle. It's actually really good, but it's unbelievably strange. It's about a young girl who may or may not have poisoned her parents, her aunt, and her little brother. I mean, it's a truly weird book. You know, I think it might have been made into a movie, within the last few years. It seems to me I saw some sort of an advertisement or something for a film version. Well, I'm not really interested in seeing the film. The book was enough for me, but I will say that book is worth a read if you're interested in something really different, maybe something for Halloween as we get closer to uh, the Halloween holiday. Well, Library of America came out with a nice two-volume set of Shirley Jackson's collected works, and that arrived from Amazon the other day, so I'm diving in. That's what I was reading out on my deck. Now, the book I'm reading is called The Road Through the Wall, and it was written back in 1948. Anyway, I'm going to miss my little deck and my little patio when the cool fall weather blows in. Going out there is kind of like having a little vacation here at home. By the way, 
The Farmer's Almanac is predicting a harsh winter for Missouri. Great. (laughs) Really looking forward to that. Now, how accurate is the Farmer's Almanac? Does anybody know? I have no idea, but I think they're supposed to be pretty accurate, right? I mean, the Almanac has been around for a long time, so there must be something to it. Well, anyway, I hope they're wrong this time around. Tonight's candle is a good one. It smells amazing. It's called Cafe Macchiato, and this one's from Kirkland's. Now, I don't usually go to Kirkland's. I go there very rarely, but I needed to go there a couple of days ago because I was looking for a new fall wreath for my Springfield house, and uh, I walked in the doors, and the first thing you notice when you walk into Kirkland's is this amazing scent. Oh, it's just so warm and inviting, and oh my goodness, just so beautiful when you walk in those doors. And then, of course, right in front of me was this amazing display of candles. Lots of different fall scents on display. It sucked me right in. (laughs) I had no willpower. And I picked up quite a few candles, actually, but the one that I'm burning tonight, again, is a Cafe Macchiato. Now, this is a yummy blend of coffee, chocolate, and vanilla. Oh, it is so delicious smelling. You know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of Talenti uh, Gelato. Have you ever had Talenti Gelato? You can get it in your local grocery store, probably. But anyway, they have this chocolate chip coffee gelato that is so good. It tastes just like this candle smells. So, mm, very good. I highly recommend this one. Okay, so we should probably get to tonight's show. Tonight, we're going back to school. And I mean way back. We're going back before even I was in school. We're going to 1969. That was before my time. Now, I know this is a little later on the timeline than we usually go here in Circa 19XX land, But I think you'll understand why when we get to our first segment. Okay, so fasten your seatbelt. I'm going to dial up 1969 in our time machine. And we're off. talk about my love for antiques and antiquing many times on this show, and that might lead you to believe that I'm an inveterate collector, or worse, a hoarder. (laughs) But I assure you that's not the case. 
I don't actually get very attached to things. And I'm honestly not all that sentimental about stuff either. I do love beautiful old things. Uh, but if I lost all the pretty old things that I've acquired over the years, it really wouldn't faze me that much. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I went through this major purge. I went room by room, closet by closet, clearing things out, giving things away. And around this time, I had dinner with a friend of mine, and I told her I was getting ready to do this. I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to be doing this purge, and she just couldn't believe it. She looked at me like I was crazy. She said, you know, how can you do that? You, you always find so many unique things. How can you give them away? Now, she and I have shopped together, so she knows the types of things that I go for. But the truth is, it's actually pretty easy for me to let go of things. But there are a few exceptions. There are a few things that I'll never part with. My dog's baby teeth, for example. Yeah, I have the baby teeth of two of my dogs, including Olive. And to me, those are like little precious pearls. You know, I just love those little teeth. I'll have them forever. I also have this set of tapestry pillows that I bought at Dillard's Department Store when I was in high school. Now, at the time, those pillows cost me a fortune. They were expensive. I had to save up for those, but I love them. And I kept them wrapped up in tissue paper in the bags that they that they came in, and they were in my closet. They were in this special place in my closet. And at least once a week, I would pull them out of the closet, unwrap them, and just look at them and dream about what my future apartment would look like. And I could finally move out and be on my own. Now, when I did get my first apartment, they were the only nice things that I had for quite some time. Well, I still have those pillows. And while they are, once again, in a closet, <laughs> I don't actually care for them all that much anymore. Um, I will probably have those even when I'm in the nursing home. They represent a time in my life when I had such big dreams. None of them ever came true. I mean, that's the usual way with dreams, isn't it? But uh, anyway, well, I guess, you know what? My dream of an apartment came true. I did have a cute little apartment, and my pillows were part of that. So anyway, those pillows are keepers. There's something else that I now have that I don't think I'll ever be able to part with. And this is one that pertains to tonight's show. And this is one that you're going to probably think is a little bit weird. <laughs> I have a vintage 1969 SRA reading laboratory kit that is in excellent condition. It's complete. It has all the parts, all the worksheets. It has reading cards, instructions for the teacher, and even, get this, it has a special set of colored SRA pencils in the original cellophane, unopened. They've never been opened in over 50 years. This whole kit looks almost like it was printed yesterday. Now, I bought this kit on eBay, but I've been looking for one for years. They're not rare. They do come up from time to time. But when they're this old, and I was wanting an old one, they're never in this condition. They are usually incomplete. They usually are all dog-eared and moldy. Sometimes they can be pretty gross. Mine is not gross. I mean, the, the box that everything comes in 
is discolored, right? So the sun has perhaps gotten to it. But in terms of the integrity of the box, it's still firm, it's still intact, and all the contents are in amazing condition. Now, you're going to gasp when you hear how much I paid for this. I paid over $300 for it, which when I go into the details of what this is, you're going to think is crazy. (laughs) But um, you know what? This is just one of those items that I'm not going to be purging. This has great significance to me. And I'll tell you why. There's, There's a couple of reasons. First of all, I don't have very fond memories of school or really my childhood in general, but I loved SRAs. SRAs were part of my childhood, and I loved them. I really excelled at them, and I could lose myself in those SRA exercises. They're one of the bright lights in what was otherwise sometimes a pretty dark time for me. And secondly, as a professional instructional designer for many years, the SRA concept, that whole approach that they used, had an enormous influence on how I myself built learning programs. So we'll talk about what that that approach was in just a moment. All of this is to say that SRAs have always been a big deal to me, and I am just so thrilled that I have a vintage edition SRA kit of my very own. Okay, I know, I know, I know. You're probably asking, what in the world is she talking about? What is an SRA? Okay, well, SRA is an acronym. It stands for Science Research Associates. Now, this was a publishing company. They published educational materials that originally focused on the occupational trades. I think they started in the late 1930s. I don't really know very much about those early materials, But in 1957, they moved into the individualized instruction market with the SRA Reading Laboratory Kit. And this is what I'm interested in. So the SRA Reading Laboratory Kit is more commonly referred to as SRAs or SRA labs. That's the cool thing that's in my box. Okay, so what are these labs? Well, they're these large boxes that contain color-coded cards that have reading exercises printed on them. Now, these color codes are important because those codes signify the difficulty level of each exercise. So, for example, the aqua level, that was always my favorite, the aqua level is more advanced than the tan level, and so on. Students would first take a test to determine what their current reading and comprehension levels were, And then they would start their exercises at that level. As a result, students could work at levels that were just right for them. This is what's meant by individualized instruction. Now, individualized instruction or individualized learning is really taken for granted nowadays. You know, we have technology. We have have self-guided learning programs. We have all kinds of stuff like that. But back in the day when SRAs were new... The idea of learners in the same grade, in the same class, working at different levels was really quite innovative. SRA is now owned by McGraw-Hill, so yes, these labs still exist. And by now, according to their website, they've been used by well over 100 million students. Actually, I think they're nearing 200 million students. 
out on their website, they do have this brief history of the SRA program. So here's what they say. In 1959, Don H. Parker, Ph.D., launched SRA Reading Laboratory while teaching in a Florida uh, classroom. Faced with the challenge of reaching different levels of learners, Dr. Parker devised a method of breaking reading selections down into color-coded levels. Students began reading at an appropriate reading level and worked upward through increasingly challenging content. Oh, and here's a quote from Dr. Parker. He said this, I wanted to find out how teaching and learning could reflect what I had learned in my beginning psychology courses about the normal curve of individualized differences. I wanted somehow to individualize instruction. But how? One teacher for every child? Well, tell that to the taxpayers. No, it had to be done with one teacher and 30 or 40 kids. I kept asking myself, how? Well, I'll tell you how. I'm going to take you to my fourth grade classroom so you can see little Jennifer at work on her SRAs. Now, this would have been back in the 1970s. Let me do the math here really quickly in my head. Okay, this would have been 1978. Oh, goodness. That seems like so long ago. But anyway, if I'm remembering correctly, and uh, I'm probably not... But I'm thinking that the SRA time was right after lunch. So picture it. It's late in the school year. Spring is just setting up to melt into early summer. And, you know, the students, we're not thinking about schoolwork so much. We're thinking about summer vacation, which is just around the corner. Now, our teacher, Mrs. Stickley, she would turn the lights down low and open all the windows to try to cool our classroom down. No, we did not have air conditioner in the school back then. She'd also have this tall, oscillating fan going. Oh, I remember this so clearly. Now, we're getting very sleepy now, aren't we? But school doesn't let out until 3.20 in the afternoon, so we're not going to be free for a couple of hours yet. As I said... It's time for SRAs. Now, Mrs. Stickley kept the SRA box. This is that box containing all the materials that we need to do our reading exercises at the front of the room beside her desk. There were actually a lot of things in the box, but what we students were focused on were the SRA cards. Actually, these were called power builders, and they were folded in half to form, oh, you know, these little folder-type things. Now, on the front of the folder there was always an illustration that corresponded to the story or the article that was printed on the inside. Following the story was a series of multiple choice questions aimed at assessing our ability to comprehend, infer, and interpret what the author had intended. The illustration on the front of the card always featured the same color as the level. There was also a tab either on the side of the card or at the top of the card with that color as well. So you always knew what color you were on. Now, as I mentioned before, we were tested to determine which color we were to start with. Well, in 1978, I started at the olive level. Others may have started at the brown level or the blue level or whatever, but I started with olive. And then this late in the year... I had moved my way up to the silver level. 
there were 10 cards that I needed to complete before moving on. So on this particular day, I walked up to the SRA box and I made my selection. I could choose any card at the silver level that I wanted. So I made my choice and then I walked back to my desk and began to read. The stories weren't very long. They were just a few paragraphs, usually an excerpt from a longer text. Of course, the annoying part was that you had to answer multiple choice questions after you read the article. I wrote the answer to each question in my student record book. This was a little soft cover workbook that documented my entire journey from card to card and level to level. Once I had completed the questions, I would go back up to the SRA box, find the corresponding answer card, and grade myself. How did I do on this particular day in 1978? 100%. Hooray! Let's come back to the present day now and check out my awesome SRA lab from eBay. We'll do a little audio unboxing. Now, for those of you who are new to Circuit Sunday Night, you should know that I do goofy stuff like this. <laughs> you know, present information that's really very visual, um, but do it through an audio-only podcast. Yeah, this is definitely not what the really good podcasters would do. Um, but it is what I do, so uh, here we go. Okay, I had to go and get myself situated here. I am no longer at my desk. I'm actually on the floor, and I've got my stuff all laid out here. And guess who was right here by me? Olive. So she's giving everything the smell test while I'm checking out the contents of the box. So let me start with the box itself. I would say, well, I have a little ruler here, I'll measure it. Looks like it's about nine inches by 12 inches. So it's a nine by 12 inch box. And then when I open it up and I look inside, it's very neatly arranged. So there's different compartments and all the contents of the box are stored vertically. So, um, I don't know, you could kind of think of it like a recipe box. You know how when you open up a recipe box, well, actually, does anybody have recipe boxes anymore? <laughs> I don't even have a recipe box, but you know, remember the old days when people had recipe boxes? And you would have the little dividers. They would have tabs, you know, like desserts or entrees or vegetables or whatever. And then the recipe cards would be in those categories behind those tabs. Well, it's really kind of the same concept here with all of the materials. Everything is stored vertically like that behind these tabbed uh, little areas. You, I guess you could also kind of think about this as almost like a filing cabinet. You know, so everything is stored vertically like that. Okay, so let's dig in. Now, when you open the box, the most obvious thing that you see, of course, would be the cards. That's the star of the show. And, of course, they've got the color codes and everything. Now, I have to emphasize 
the amazing condition that this is all in. I know I mentioned that before, but it is really pretty astonishing when you consider how old this is. I have seen a lot of uh, SRA kits over the years because I've looked for them. And you can find them. They're not really rare, but when they're this old, and this is what I wanted, I wanted an old kit, they never look like this. Never in a million years. Actually, the, the new ones don't look like this either. Usually they're creased, they're missing parts, there's tears, there's fades, the tabs are all dog-eared and messy and you know, like I said, sometimes they can be kind of moldy and gross. And all I can say about these materials is everything is very crisp. Everything looks perfect. The only thing that really indicates that, you know, this is not a new kit is what was probably white. So everything, you know, like the booklets and the papers and everything were, I'm sure, white. Now they're off-white. <laughs> They're cream colored, but other than that, everything is very crisp and pretty much perfect. Okay, so like I said, the th thing that you see first are the color cards, but I'm going to skip all that because that's the fun part, so let's do that last. Okay, so I want to look at the teacher materials. So this kit, the students were really only interested in the reading cards, but, of course, there's other instructional materials in here as well that would have been of greater interest to the teacher. So the first thing that I see actually was for the teacher. And it's a little booklet that's called Individualized Learning Through the Reading Laboratory Series. And if I look in here, yeah, it just, um, it talks about the multi-level philosophy, um, how to use the materials and all of that. So, oh, you know, I didn't think I knew what the grade level was for this book, but maybe I do. Okay, it looks like this kit goes up to grade seven. The kit that I have either goes up to the seventh grade or the eighth grade. So junior high, I guess this would have been like junior high age, I guess. Uh, but anyway, okay, so we've got this little booklet all about individualized instruction, which is not interesting to you probably, but as a, a person who's into this kind of stuff, I'm totally, I'm totally going to be reading that. Okay, now the next thing is something called the Rate Builder Key Booklet. And this is awesome because this is a set of 20, yeah, 20 little booklets that are still packaged up. They're wrapped with string. It looks like this is how they came from the publisher. They've never been out of this little packet, this little bundle. Now, I'm not exactly sure what a Rate Builder Key is. I do know that SRAs were designed really to achieve two ends. One of the things that they were designed to do is build comprehension. So when students would read, do they understand what they were reading? That's that's the number one thing that, that SRAs were designed to do. The second thing that they were designed to do, though, was to increase the speed with which students would read. So I would imagine that's what these have to do. Um, oh, wait, I've got a description. Okay, let me take a look here. 
The rate builders will help students learn to read faster. They will also help them keep attention on what they're reading so that they can understand it better. They'll use the rate builder key booklet to correct their own work. Hmm. Still not entirely sure how they work, but uh, I don't remember these. I'm sure I used them when I was a student, but I just don't remember them. Okay, well, moving on. Oh, now this is super cool. Okay, this is one of the more important little items here in the book. This is the student record book. This is the book where the student would write their answers to all the questions on the SRA cards. Now, it does look like there's some other things in this book. Yeah, there's um, some self-assessment questionnaires, some other tests and graphs and charts and that kind of thing. So um, there's a questionnaire on how, do, how well do you study Oh, and this is also where the placement tests are. These are the tests that the students would take to determine what their starting color was, what level they started at. So that's a pretty important little item there. And now I come to the colored pencils. This is a mystery item, and I don't see any explanation as to what these are for. So I have two packets unopened in the cellophane they're uh, SRA pencils, and you can see uh, the cellophane on the back has yellowed, but it's still intact. Now, here's what's interesting about these pencils. They are the same colors as the color codes for the reading cards. What on earth were these for? I don't remember. I have no idea what these color pencils would be for. But they do, they're exactly the same color as the tabs. Interesting. But what I love so much about these is they are brand spanking new. They're new old stock. Over 50 years old. Still in the cellophane. Never opened. How cool is that? Okay. And now for the star of the show. The cards. Now remember that recipe card analogy that I used a little bit ago? You know, that the tabbed categories and then the cards with each tab. Okay, well, that's, again, exactly how these, these cards are arranged. And it looks like there's 10 color levels. So it starts with tan. Tan is the lowest level. And the tan level is pretty short. All of the little stories are short. And the font is bigger. And then... We go all the way up to the silver. And, and by the way, these cards are actually, the official name are uh, power builders. These are power builders. So they're numbered and color coded. And the silver ones, those are the most advanced. Those have a small font. And those look like pretty much what I would read, what adults would read. So we kind of go the gamut here. There are 10 levels. So we have the tan level, brown. Red, orange, gold, olive, green, aqua, blue, and then silver. Now, I have to say, I think that these kits have different colors because I remember violet. I remember there being a violet level, and I don't have a violet level here. 
So I don't know. Now, Aqua, I know, was always in these SRA kits, or at least that's what I remember, but I don't know. I'm not sure how those uh, color codes were arranged from one box to the next. Okay, so that is a rundown of my box. Now, there are some other things. There are, uh, oh, there's more rate builder exercises. Those are cards as well. But the things that I'm most interested in are these power builders. And so, of course, we have to try this out, don't we? I want to pick a card. And now, like I said, the upper levels are pretty advanced. And I want to do one that's short. So I think I'm going to go for the lowest level. And that would be tan. And how about this one? This one looks kind of cute. It's called Hats Off by Ruth Pope. Yeah, let's do this one. Okay, this is card number four in the tan level. And on the front of the card is this cartoon drawing of a king and some knights. And of course, all the illustration is in tan to correspond with the level, the color level. Okay, so get your pencils ready because, yeah, I'm going to test you on this. The king was sad. And he had a right to be. His people just did not show him the proper respect. No one ever rolled out a red carpet before him. No one bowed in front of his throne. Why not one man took off his hat when the king passed by? The king knew why. The truth was, he was not a very good king. He tried to be, but things just did not work out right. Once he led the army to war, they got lost. Once he moved the royal treasure to a safer place. Well, he never did remember where. Once he even lost the key to his own castle. He did not want this to be known. He tried to sneak through a window, but then he got stuck. The king sighed. Oh, I try so hard, he said. The people should be a little bit grateful. They don't have to roll out the red carpet. They don't have to bow, but at least they could take off their hats. This worried him a lot. At last, he went to see a clever old man who lived in a cave. How can I make people take off their hats to me? The king asked. The old man had a strange answer. Well, first you must take off your own hat, he said. And then, and then he relayed his plan to the king. Well, the next day, the king made a speech. I am no longer your king, he said, and he took off his crown. He put it on the head of the wisest man in the land. Then he walked down the street. He went into a new shop. It was his own little shop now. Soon many men of the town went in too, and the king was happy at last, for each man took off his hat. The shop was a barber shop. A fine happy ending except for one thing. He was no better barber than he was a king. Okay, that was kind of cute, huh? All right, so now we've got some questions. That was our little article. And we've got actually several questions. We've got a section called, How Well Did You Read? This is all about recall. What do you remember? Then there's a section on uh, learning about words and, uh, oh, there's some stuff about grammar, and then there's a question, 
an open-ended question that says, there must be other ways that the king could have gotten his people to take off their hats to him. Can you think of any? All right, but we're going to just do the first five questions. Recall. Okay, so here they are. Number one, the king was sad because he was not A, loved, B, respected, or C, feared. Two, the king gave up his throne because A, an old man told him to, B, his people forced him to, or C, his wife asked him to. Three, the king opened a barber shop so that men would have to A, talk to him, B, be nice to him, or C, take off their hats to him. Four, the king gave his crown to the A, best fighter in the land, B, wisest man in the land, or C, biggest man in the land. Five, the king turned out to be A, a good barber, B, a wise barber, or C, a bad barber. Okay, (laughs) let's see how you did. What other podcast can you listen to that will give you this kind of test? (laughs) No podcast. (laughs) All right, let's see how we did. Number one, the king was sad because he was not B, respected. Number two, the king gave up his throne because A, an old man told him to. Three, the king opened a barber shop so that men would have to C, take off their hats to him. Four, the king gave his crown to the B, wisest man in the land. And five, the king turned out to be C, a bad barber. Well, so how about that? We just completed a real-life lesson from 1969. Well, this kit is definitely one of my all-time favorite finds. To get a vintage kit like this that's complete and in near-mint condition is really something special. Well, or maybe you just need to be a nerd like me to think this is cool. And now for something really different. You know I don't like to venture through time after 1964. I've already mentioned that tonight, but we're already in 1969. So before we leave it, and while we're on the topic of school, let's make one more stop. And this stop is one of the strangest early grade school experiences thousands of American school children ever had. Now, I think what I'm about to talk about is a uniquely American experience. SRAs, while those were developed in uh, the U.S., they were also used abroad. So I know schools in the U.K. use them. Maybe they still do. I don't know. But this next thing, I'm not sure. But I think this was just for us here in the uh, U.S. (laughs) I have two words for you. Magic pancakes. Does that stir up any memories? If you were in grade school in the U.S. in the 1970s, it almost certainly does. In 1969, a short film entitled Winter of the Witch was produced by Parents Magazine and distributed to grade schools. 
This movie was shown in schools year after year, and by the time I was in school, it was such a staple that the older kids knew all the dialogue by heart. There was something mesmerizing about this film, and something about it was very emblematic about the late 60s. It had this psychedelic quality. Basically, the story is people eat pancakes, and they experience through these pancakes this incredible euphoria. They even see spots before their eyes. Yeah, this was a film shown in school for years. Why? (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) It remains a mystery to this day. Okay, so let's take a look at the story. There's a single mom and her little boy, and I'm going to call the little boy Nick, because I think his name is Nick or Nicky or Nicholas or something like that. But anyway, there's a single mom, her little boy, we'll call him Nick. They decide to leave the big city and make a fresh start by getting a a home in a small town. Well, they go, they meet up with a realtor, they see what kind of house they can purchase with their limited budget, and while she's there, the mother presents a list to the realtor of all the things that she would love to have in her dream home. She wants plenty of space, lots of light, lots of storage. She would love a big fireplace, you know, that kind of thing. Well, knowing her budget, the realtor has to think for a moment. But then all of a sudden, the light bulb comes on. He remembers a property that he thinks may be just perfect for her, and he offers her this amazing deal. He has a mansion with 20 rooms and a fireplace. She gets kind of excited about this idea, but then, you know, reality sets in and she has to remind him of her budget. But he says, hey, no worries. I can make you an unbelievable offer. He tells her that she can have the property for $400. Well, goodness. I mean, what can she do? She can't turn that down. So she takes the offer and she leaves with the keys. Well, the realtor's delighted. I mean, he's literally jumping up and down. He calls his business partner with the amazing news. The old haunted mansion, of course, right? (laughs) The mansion is haunted that they've been trying to unload for years is finally off their hands. Well, when we cut to the next scene, we see that the boy and his mother have arrived at the house And it's not looking very good. It's pretty dilapidated. It's full of trash. There is some furniture in there, but it's all jumbled up. There's lots of cobwebs. And they're looking around the space, just wondering, how are we going to ever fix this up? How are we going to make this livable? Well, not long after they arrived, while they're still standing, looking around at their new house, they start to hear these footsteps coming very slowly down the stairs. Okay, now this is a very tense moment, right? This is supposed to be a haunted house. It looks very scary. And here come these footsteps. Well, it turns out it's a witch. And she looks exactly like you would imagine a witch would look. She's got the tall, black, pointy hat. She's holding an old broom. She's wearing a long black robe. Well, the witch informs the boy and his mother that she's 300 years old. And, more importantly, this is her house. Well, the mother stands her ground. She explains that they had just purchased the house, that it belongs to them now, and that they don't want any trouble. 
Now, the mother also alludes to the fact that they've just been through some trouble. They've had some turmoil. I don't know what that was. Um, I don't know if she's referring to a divorce or maybe her husband died or something. But anyway, they've been through a rough time. They have nowhere else to go. All they want is a home to call their own. Well, the boy, the mother, and the witch all reach an impasse. The witch has nowhere else to go. Neither do the boy and his mother. And so the boy comes up with an imaginative suggestion. Why can't they all live together? The witch can stay up in the attic, and Nick and his mom can have the rest of the house. Well, they reluctantly agree to this arrangement, and so the witch heads up to the attic, and she stays there for quite a while. She's up there for a few weeks. The mother doesn't even see the witch for a long time. Now, Nick does, because he visits her every now and then, and when he goes to see her, he takes the newspapers. So that's her one contact with the outside world, are these newspapers that she's been reading. Well, while the witch has been up in the attic, Nick and his mom have been fixing up the rest of the house. They've painted it, they've cleaned it up, they've decorated it. It actually looks very nice now. It looks like a real home. And, uh, you know, the witch is getting pretty comfortable up in her attic, too. Well, one day, Nick is up there visiting with the witch, and he notices that she's very depressed. He asks her why, and she says she's depressed because when she reads the newspapers, all she sees is bad news. She feels really bad about how terrible the world has become. She tells Nick that she longs for the good old days. All right, that's where we're going to stop, and we're going to go to the film now. Let's pick up the film from there. Oh, what wouldn't I give to be back in the good old days? What did you do in the good old days? Well, in the good old days, this house was full of witches, and I used to cook for them. What did you cook? Oh, everything that witches like. Mostly magic foods. Would you cook for us? Cook for you? <laughs> Pop, Pop, did you hear that? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Why didn't I think of that before? That's the answer. <laughs> we'll show them what an old witch can do. Boy... We accept your offer. Tonight, we begin to cook. <laughs> and so all that night, the old witch worked hard, cooking up a strange brew in a big black pot. The witch is at her brew all night, and finally when it's morning, she's ready to do the big reveal. Now, Nick has fallen asleep in the kitchen, so she's going to wake him up, and when she introduces her magic pancakes, she says something that I find pretty disturbing as an adult watching this film. Wake up. Wake up, boy. What? I've finished. I've made my magic specialty. Great. What is it? Pancakes. Blueberry pancakes. But all that work for pancakes. They're not just pancakes. They're the final solution to the unhappiness problem. Go on, go on, try some. 
Yeah, she calls these pancakes and their psychedelic qualities the final solution to the unhappiness problem. Yeah, that's right. Finding true happiness is just a matter of ingesting the right substances. Uh, no, no, that <laughs> that couldn't be more wrong. Oh, this explains so much about my generation. Anyway, the boy has tasted these magic pancakes, and we'll listen into his reaction in a moment. But there's a couple of things you should know. This is the part of the film that is seared into everyone's memory. When people eat the pancakes, two things happen. First, we hear these crazy horns play like this. Or like this. And then the other thing that happens is we see all these colored dots that pop on and off the screen. Yes, it's very trippy. Okay, so remember, the boy has just popped a forkful of pancakes into his mouth. Wow. They're magic pancakes. They make people happy. What's going on here? Pancakes, Mommy. Magic pancakes. What? I've been cooking. Making a mess is more like it. You try some, little. Do you good. Never tasted anything so good. Suddenly I feel quite happy. What did you put in them? That, my good woman, must remain my secret. But they are happiness pancakes, guaranteed to make people happy. Even the meanest and happiest people. One bite, and they're not unhappy anymore. I just, I just reversed an old recipe. These pancakes are special. And, of course, the witch promises that they will make even the most unhappy people happy again. It doesn't take too long to test this out, because two old ladies arrive at the front door. We soon discover that these ladies are kind of busybodies. They're not very nice. They're just nosy. They're nosing around to see what's going on in the house. And the mother decides that what these crabby ladies need is a little magic. Uh, We've been eating. Would you care to join us? I don't mind if we do. What are these? Pancakes? Blueberry pancakes. Not bad. Rather good. Very good. Marvelous. Extraordinary. Ambrosia. Best food I've ever eaten. Are you happy? Happy? I've never felt better in my life. You're a very talented cook, my dear. You must give me the recipe. Oh, uh, I'm afraid that must remain a secret. The recipe may be secret, but you can't keep these pancakes a secret. We don't intend to. We plan to open a pancake parlor. Wow. So on the spot, the mother decides to open up a pancake parlor. That's quite an amazing uh, business plan she's got there. Well, they spend the next day setting everything up. They're in the dining room, and they have several tables and chairs all arranged, kind of like a little restaurant. So it really is handy that they've got 
plenty of space here in this big mansion. Anyway, they send invitations out to everyone in the neighborhood, and everyone comes. They come to try out these pancakes. Well, everyone is deliriously happy after they've eaten them. They're laughing. They're dancing. They are even, I think at one point, they're throwing confetti up in the air. I think there's some balloons, if I'm remembering correctly. It's like the most awesome, wholesome trip anyone's ever been on. Word travels, and soon people are coming from miles around for these pancakes. This is a lucky development for everyone. The witch has purpose now. She's not sad. She's not isolated anymore. The boy and his mother have a new stream of income and some stability. At one point, the mother even tells her son that they are now in the happiness business. Watch out, Disneyland. The happiest place on earth isn't in California or Florida. No, no. It's this pancake parlor. (laughs) Well, and of course, the customers are happy. They can leave their cares behind once they've been served a plate of magic pancakes. The witch is also part of the family now. So here's how the story ends. Nikki and the old witch became the best of friends. He helped her in the kitchen. And every day, they took long walks together in the country. Bad witch. Very bad. Ah, but that's very good for a witch. See, in those days, people needed a little scaring now and then. But times have changed. People are already scared. They need something they can believe in. And I've given them something to believe in. The goodness of the pancake. Watch. Watch how people are eating my pancake. They're all happy. Some of them are happy for the first time in their lives. You're happy. Your mother's happy. The house is happy. And when people are happy, then they want to make other people happy. Someday, when everyone is happy, then I'm going to start scaring them again. Kind of a disturbing message again here. The witch says she gave the people something to believe in. Pancakes. (laughs) That's pretty wild. I don't want to believe in pancakes. But anyway, this short film is only about 25 minutes in length. And like I said, it was shown year after year in school. No one seems to be clear on where the educational value in this film is. But you know what? When I was a kid, I didn't care about the educational value. I loved this film at the time, and so did everyone I knew. There was something about it that really cranked up our imaginations. And of course, you know, we liked the break from the lessons and, you know, that kind of thing. But unlike the many other films that were shown in school, this is the one that people remember. The New York Times even had an article about this film back in 2011, And I love this article because I think it really captures this crazy phenomenon that is this film. I'm going to read you an excerpt of this article. And uh, let's see, what's it called? Something about a witch. 
1969 film Touches a Generation, and this is written by Jennifer Mendelson. Again, New York Times, 2011. For years, Scott Murdoch was haunted by a cinematic image fluttering at the periphery of his memory. It involved a witch. She was serving pancakes, and there were lots of colorful bubbles floating over the screen. Well, he couldn't shake the vision from his mind, yet he had no idea where it came from. Everybody I asked about it thought I was nuts, said Mr. Murdoch, a 41-year-old computer programmer in Kansas City, Missouri. Well, he wasn't alone. In Madison, Wisconsin, Anne Imig, a 37-year-old humorist, had a similarly unsettling memory. I would ask people, don't you remember that movie with the witch and the magical blueberry pancakes, she recalled, and they'd say, no, Anne, you're high. Repeated queries, and for some, years of online sleuthing, confirm that the film is real. It's a 1969 short entitled Winter of the Witch. The film, now easy to track down on the internet, is being discovered by a generation of adults with a fervor more typically associated with locating a long-lost relative than a kiddie movie. Based on a 1963 children's picture book called Old Black Witch, the movie stars Anna Strasberg. She was the wife of the late Lee Strasberg of method acting fame. She played a single mother who moves with her son into a country house that's haunted by a witch. The witch is played by the velvet-voiced Hermione Ginghold. The witch turns out to have a handy knack for cooking pancakes that make people instantly happy, as illustrated by a blast of circus music and a colorful burst of bubbles crudely superimposed on the screen. The first project of Parents Magazine Films and producer Thomas Sand, Winter of the Witch was distributed by the Learning Corporation of America to schools nationwide, though just what its educational message was supposed to be is unclear to its many fans. Countless thousands of students watched it on old-fashioned projectors in gyms and libraries and auditoriums. For many, it was a favorite rainy day activity or a Halloween treat. By all rights, the quirky little production should have faded away, just like the quaintly dated turtlenecks and the headscarves that it features. But something about Winter of the Witch burrowed its way into the consciousness of a subset of children who saw it, and it never left, leading many to search for it well into adulthood. Those colored dots must have burned themselves into people's brains, wrote Gerald Herman, who directed the low-budget film for only $500 while a student at New York University. He now runs an art house cinema in Hanoi, Vietnam. Certainly the psychedelic dots make the movie all the more intriguing for grown-ups. While it was obviously a drug film, proclaimed one viewer online, another gleefully recalled the magic trippy pancakes and added, What I love most about this movie is that somehow our teachers felt this was appropriate to show in school year after year. Mr. Herman, the director, dismissed the notion of any latent drug theme. Magic food that gives people a rush and makes everyone happy, he joked. Definitely an educational message there. But seriously, we didn't have any hidden agenda while making the movie. This was Parents Magazine, after all. Okay, well, so The Winter Witch is readily available out on YouTube, so I'll post links to the full film so you can watch it. I do suggest that you go out and watch the full film because it's just too much fun not to. Uh, 
I'm also going to post a link to the full New York Times article because I think it's pretty good too. Well, enjoy this blast from my past. Now I want to take you into my home office. Now let me describe my home office to you. It's different than every other part of my house. My house is decorated in a very traditional type of style. Yeah, I do have a lot of antiques. Not everything I have is old, but I do tend to gravitate toward old things from our era right here in Circa 19XX land. So the first half of the 20th century, that's really the kind of stuff that I like, so I have a lot of that stuff. But I also have a couple of things that date back to the late Victorian period. And one thing that I have that's even older than that dates back to the Civil War. So I have this beautiful oval portrait of a girl. This is a painting, but it's of this beautiful girl. She's really pretty. She has her rosy cheeks and everything. And she's holding this little dog. And that dates back to the Civil War. I think that's the oldest thing that I have in my entire house. But my point is that my decor is very traditional, except in my office. My office is different. It's decorated with a nod toward mid-century modern. I do have quite a bit of vintage stuff in there. I have a lot of Disney. All my Disney things are in there, including my uh, my vintage Disney. So I've got A few items, not an enormous amount of vintage Disney stuff, but I have some vintage Disney in there. And one of my favorite things is this souvenir plate that's hanging over my desk. It dates back to the 1960s, and it's from Marceline, Missouri. So it's got some little landmarks and things from around Marceline. And for Disney fans out there, you know that Walt Disney lived in Marceline for a few years when he was a a child. And Marceline's downtown served as a basis for Main Street at Disneyland. So I love Marceline. I've been there a few times. They've got a fantastic Disney museum in Marceline. A lot of the uh, Disney folks come. I have a friend who works for Disney. She's never been to Marceline, but she talks about going all the time. D23, the big fan club, the official Disney uh, fan club, they go to Marceline. Um, from time to time. So Marceline is kind of a big deal in the world of Disney. And I love it too, of course. But anyway, that plate, that souvenir plate is hanging over my desk. Now, I also have some artifacts from the 1962 and 1964 World's Fairs. Those were in uh, Seattle in 1962 and New York in 1964. Now, To get to my office, you go through these double doors, and they the double doors are from my family room downstairs, and you just open them up, and there's my office. So what's kind of cool about that is you just kind of push your way through those doors, and you enter a different era. Now, of course, I have some bookshelves in there, 
what is an office without bookshelves? And I have one whole shelf that is dedicated to vintage textbooks. Now, you know this because I've mentioned it before that I was a high school teacher at one time. This was years and years ago. And honestly, I didn't teach for very long. I made my career in corporate America, but uh, I was on the uh, learning and development part of corporate life and, and still am. I'm talking like I'm not doing that anymore when I still do that. that I do have a job. I'm not retired yet. <laughs> Wish I was, but I'm not retired yet. So I uh, was an instructional designer for many years, and then the last 15 to 20 years, I have been managing training functions. So I've been around learning and instruction my entire life as a student, as a teacher, and as a corporate L&D professional. So I can't help but that I'm a bit of a textbook nerd. Me and I remind you that I spent over $300 on that SRA kit that we toured earlier on tonight's show. Who else would do that but a textbook nerd? Well, I particularly like teacher's editions, but I have some student editions too. The first vintage textbook I ever purchased is still my favorite, and it's a student version. It's a near-mint condition. Actually, no, it's not a near-mint condition. It is a mint condition. Never before opened, 1955 high school English textbook called Building Better English. Now, when I say that it's never been opened, it had never been opened until I opened it. It has been opened uh, now. But anyway, this is for the 10th grade, so it would have been for sophomores. And I bought this one with my mom. So my mom and I had taken a, a very short little road trip from Topeka, Kansas, which is where they lived at the time, to Paxico, Kansas, which is about 30 minutes away. I haven't been to Paxico in years, so I'm not sure what they have there now. But back in the day, when I used to go there, there were some antique shops there, not very many. This was a very small little place. In fact, I think it might have been a town that existed primarily in name only. I mean, that's kind of what it seemed like because they really didn't have much there. You would drive down this road, and I'm remembering it as a dirt road, but that may not be accurate. But anyway, it's kind of a rural road for sure. And then you would all of a sudden come to Paxico. And it was just kind of this little clearing. I guess you could call it an, in an intersection because a couple of roads intersected, but there was really nothing there. They had some old storefronts, and then behind those storefronts, they had a couple of antique malls. And, well, when I say antique malls, I mean antique shops. These were small places. These were not big. And so that was it. But on this particular day, when my mom and I drove in, they were having some sort of a little fair. So they had all of these tables set out for a flea market. And this book, the Building Better English book, was on one of those tables. I think it was like two dollars. It was some it was really cheap. Some some really unbelievably low cost. Well, when I saw that the condition that this book was in was like brand new, I was just fascinated by it. And of course I had to have it. Now, when I say brand new, I mean brand spanking new. So the colors on the cover are very vibrant and bright. The book was crisp when I opened it. I mean, you could tell that it had never been opened before. The pages are perfect. There's no like little moldy spots or anything gross. 
no rips, no tears, no nothing. So it's in excellent condition. And, you know, unlike the SRAs, where if you recall, I mentioned that the SRA pages were kind of off-white now. They had been white. They sort of discolored with age. Not so with these, these pages. These are white. So this looks like it could have been printed just yesterday. So let me describe this book to you because I have it in my hot little hand right now. Um, it's got a yellow cover, and that's the background, but it also has these black and white little cutout images of teenagers, and they're doing teenager-type things. So imagine a yellow background, and then sort of spaced here and there are these cutout black and white images of teenagers doing stuff. So there's one kid that's looking through a telescope, there's a couple of girls that look like they're, what are they doing? I think they're looking at records. One guy is perusing a magazine rack. And then we've got another little group of students that I don't know what they're doing. It looks like they may be playing charades or something. I don't know. Then on the back cover, there's a gal at a podium and she looks like she's giving a presentation. There's a guy working out with his coach. And then there are three young teenagers sitting on a bench talking. And you know what's funny is in every scene, there are textbooks lying around. So even if they're doing fun stuff, they've got their textbooks nearby, which I think is pretty fun. Now, what I love about these images is, you know, they're from the 1950s. And so they're 50s fashions. So all the girls have these very long mid-calf skirts. They're wearing bobby socks and loafers. Some of them have ponytails. And then the boys also have uh, dungarees or khakis that are rolled at the ankle. And they, too, are wearing loafers. But anyway, I, you know, the cover enough is just cool. If, if it was just the cover, that would have been enough for me to buy this book. But then on the inside, there's all kinds of really fabulous 1950s cartoon illustrations. And again, the colors are vibrant and perfect and so 1950s. It kind of has a little bit of that space age kind of feel to them. Okay, so let's take a little tour of this book. There are four sections, and then within each section there are several chapters. So let's take a look here. All right, section one is all about speaking and listening skills. Section two is about writing skills. Section three is focused on reading. And let's see, section four. Um, section four is building sentences. Oh, this is all the boring grammar stuff. Okay, well, that's not very interesting. I think the most interesting sections are the ones on writing and reading. So let's kind of zoom in on those. So there are chapters on things like how to write social letters. Let's see, they've got writing the chatty, friendly letter, writing apologies, writing excuses, writing travel letters and postcards. I even have a lesson on how to write postcards. Writing letters of thanks, writing condolences, writing congratulatory letters. Okay, so those are the social letters, but then they also have business letters. So they have lessons on writing letters of complaint and how to write application letters and so on. 
Okay, now there's also a section in here called Writing for Fun. Oh, let's check that out. Okay, so here's a guide for finding ideas for original writing. Number one, look within yourself. You yourself are the best source of writing material. What do you know more about than you know about yourself? You know the experience that you have had, your likes and dislikes, your ideals, your observations, and so on. Number two, observe what goes on around you. Call into use your five senses. Open your eyes and your ears. Number three, tap the, uh, tap the newspaper and other reading material for suggestions. News articles often suggest ideas that can be turned into stories, descriptions, or explanations. And then when all else fails, use your imagination. <laughs> Only use your imagination with every, when everything else fails. Your knowledge of history, science, and geography will help you recreate interesting past events and look into the future. Okay, now here's another interesting section. This section is on selecting television programs. Oh, let's see what they have to say. Number one, try to find programs that will broaden your knowledge and interest in your school subjects. Be alert to find broadcasts and telecasts of novels, biographies, plays, operas, or historical events. Also look for programs dealing with science, art, foreign countries and languages, or current events. Yes, I'm sure that that's what the students did, that they chose their programs based on the extent to which they would broaden their school subjects. <laughs> um, okay, number two. Search for new programs that you think may develop into feature programs. Search also for new performers that you think may become stars. Not sure what value there is in that, but anyway. Okay, number three. Don't tune into a program purely from habit. If you vary your selections, you may find some happy surprises. Oh, how charming this is. Isn't this just so sweet? I love this. Okay, now they also have some tips for reviewing television programs with a critical eye. Mm, we should focus on this. Okay, so first, when watching programs that feature dance orchestras, consider why the orchestra is a good one. Again, I guess students watched programs with orchestras in them back in the day. I don't know. Is the uh, orchestra a good one, and is it because of its style of arrangements, its specialties, its vocalists, its leaders, or a combination of all four? If watching sporting events... Consider whether or not the announcer really knows the sport. Yes, that's important. <laughs> Does he describe vividly and enthusiastically things as they happen? Does he convey to you the reactions of the audience? If watching comedy, is the humor clever and original? Is it in good taste or does it depend on insults, slapstick, or questionable topics? You know what? That is really a good suggestion, <laughs> is to consider the humor. Today's humor is just so terrible, isn't it? Um, now, I don't understand what they mean, though, about slapstick. They seem to be feeling like that's kind of a negative in comedy. I'm not sure what the, the issue is there with that. But anyway, okay, one last item here. If watching classical music programs... Do the orchestra and the conductor seem highly skilled? Do the announcer's comments help you to understand the music? Are the programs so selected and presented that they help you to appreciate classical music? 
Oh, now how about this? In all programs that you listen to, judge the sponsor's advertising. He's entitled to your attention. Interesting. He's entitled to your attention, especially so if his advertising is brief, appropriately placed, and moderate in tone. wonder what moderate in tone means in advertising. Much advertising is entertaining and clever in itself. Recognize and condemn advertising that is too long, that disrupts the programs, or that is irritatingly loud. (laughs) Oh, my. Okay, now they also have some uh, suggestions on how to evaluate motion pictures. Not all motion pictures are worthwhile. Some of them depict the lives of gangsters or notorious outlaws in a sympathetic way. Such pictures glamorize crime and make a hero of a criminal who in real life caused many innocent people to suffer. Other pictures appeal to or foster harmful prejudices. Still others give a young person false standards of living so that he becomes dissatisfied with his own home life, appearance, clothes, or friends. Now, you know what? That is pretty good advice. You know what that makes me think of is the whole HGTV sort of uh, phenomenon where everybody watches HDTV and that has elevated the standards that we all have for our houses. So we see these beautiful homes on HGTV and then we look around at our own houses and they don't measure up and so then we're really unhappy. So I think this is actually some pretty good um, advice that, you know, make sure that you're not just watching shows that are giving you an unrealistic expectation of what life is supposed to be. You know, you look at this and it seems like a different planet, doesn't it? I mean, everything is so different now. But anyway, this is a great book. There are chapters on parliamentary procedures, presentation skills, facilitating discussions. That's pretty good for a sophomore in high school to learn. And even how to take part in discussions. So again, this was pretty useful stuff that served to prepare these young students of almost 70 years ago for the world that they were about to enter into. Okay, well, our old school adventures have come to an end this evening. The next time you're in an antique shop and you see some old textbooks, don't just dismiss them. I know that most of them are pretty beat up. You may not really have much of an interest in them, but I'll tell you what, nothing will transport you in time like reading through these lessons from a bygone era. Hey, have you ever been curious about something? and then looked it up on the internet, and then you followed one link to another link to another link, and before you know it, you're down a rabbit hole, and that rabbit hole takes you to kind of strange, unexpected places. Has that ever happened to you? (laughs) That happens to me all the time. This next segment was really born out of that kind of misadventure. So earlier this week, I met a woman who was wearing the most beautiful garnet ring, Now, I am not a ring wearer. I don't even own a ring, but I love garnets. I think garnets are my favorite gemstone. You know, right before COVID came along, I was in Prague, and it was a work trip, 
but I had an opportunity to do some sightseeing and some shopping, and there were garnets everywhere, and different colors too. So I normally think of garnets as red, but I believe there were some green garnets there too, and they were just all so beautiful. I bought my niece a pair of ear, uh, earrings there, garnet earrings, and they're just the most perfect dark blood red color. Now, I know that sounds a little macabre, but that color is so deep and beautiful. I just love them. Anyway, I wanted to find out more information about garnets, so I googled them, and then an hour later, <laughs> I found myself on the gemsociety.org website reading all about birthstones. Yeah, how did that happen? I don't know. Well, garnet is a birthstone, so there's a clue right there as to how that happened. Now, did you know that while the concept of birthstones dates all the way back to biblical times, there wasn't really any consensus as to which stones would go with which month until 1912. It was that year that the National Association of Jewelers met and they officially standardized the list. So uh, each month at that point had an agreed-upon gemstone associated with it. Now, um, according to the International Gem Society, they say this, the list combined various customs that had evolved over time while ensuring that the stones they chose would be practical for American jewelers to sell and promote in large quantities. It was then modified in 1952 by the Jewelry Industry Council of America, adding alexandrite to June, citrine to November, pink tourmaline to October, and zircon to December. Although the list has nearly remained the same since then, in 2002, the gem tanzanite was added to December stones, and just as recently as 2016, spinel was added to the month of August. So there are two birthstone lists. There's the traditional list, and I'm assuming that that's the one that dates back to 1912. So here's that traditional list. January, garnet. February, amethyst. March, bloodstone. What is bloodstone? I have no idea. April, diamond. May, emerald. June, pearl. July, ruby. August, um, sardonyx. Would that be onyx? I have no idea. September, sapphire. October, opal. November, topaz. And December, turquoise or lapis. Now here's the modern list. I think this is the one that we're more familiar with. January is garnet. February, amethyst. March is aquamarine, not bloodstone. So I know aquamarine for sure. April, diamond. May, emerald. June, alexandrite. July, ruby. August, peridot or spinel. September, sapphire. October, tourmaline. November, golden topaz or citrine, and December, blue zircon, blue topaz, or tanzanite. Okay, now you know how to shop for the upcoming holidays. You're welcome.
Wasn't that lovely? That was a 1933 recording of Edith Baker playing a song by Anne Ronell, "Willow Weep for Me." I was thinking about this song yesterday, and I thought it would be perfect for our show. I went to a park for a long walk, and while I was on that walk, I saw the most beautiful thing. The walking trail that I was on wound around a small lake, and at one point along the trail. There was this little cluster of weeping willows, and their branches were drooping over the water. Oh, it was just so nice and so peaceful. Now, someone told me a long time ago that weeping willows are not great to plant in your yard because they die.、Um, they're not very hardy. That's what I heard.、Um, I don't remember who told me that. I don't know if it's even true, but I've just heard they're. Somewhat difficult to care for in the tree world. I don't know, but anyway, even so, I think that's my favorite tree. They're just so graceful and so beautiful. Well, every time I see weeping willows, I think of that beautiful song. My dad introduced me to that song when I was still at home living with my parents. This is a melancholy little piece. There are lyrics to it, though I don't think I've ever heard this sung. Let's see. Did Anne Ronell write the music and the lyrics? Scroll, scroll, scroll. Yes, she did. Yes, so she wrote the music and the lyrics. So let's take a look at these lyrics because, like I said, this is kind of a, a sad little song. Willow, weep for me. Willow, weep for me. Bend your branches green along the stream that runs to sea. Listen to my plea. Listen, Willow, weep for me. Gone, my lover's dream, lovely summer dream. Gone and left me here to weep my tears into the stream. Sad as I can be, hear me, Willow, and weep for me. Whisper to the wind to say that love has sinned, to leave my heart aching and making this moan. 
murmur to the night to hide her starry light so none will find me sighing and crying all alone. Well, okay, that's the first verse. Let's see if things pick up at all in the second verse. Weeping willow tree, weep in sympathy. Mm, I don't think so. (laughs) I think this is still sad. Bend your branches down along the ground and cover me. When the shadows fall, bend, O willow, and weep for me. To leave my heart aching, making this moan, so none will find me sighing and crying all alone. Weeping willow tree, weep in sympathy. Bend your branches down along the ground and cover me. When the shadows fall, bend, O willow, bend, O willow, and weep for me. Yes, a very sad little song. Now, the Edith Baker version is not the one that I knew. In fact, the first time I heard it was just the other day. And I have to say, I love that version. That was beautiful. Okay, but that's not the version that I knew. The version that I knew best was from 1955. So yes, the same year that our English textbook from earlier in the show was published. My dad gave me a CD called Clifford Brown with Strings, which, by the way, is one of the most beautiful and spectacular recordings you will ever hear. On that CD is Brown's version of Willow Weep for Me, and it is, again, spectacularly beautiful. Who was Clifford Brown? Well, Clifford Brown was a jazz trumpeter who died far too young. Far too young. He was only 25, and he died in a car accident. Now, Clifford Brown with Strings is a jazz album. It's considered a classic, but it has this really sweet lyrical quality because of the string accompaniment. So even if you're not a big jazz fan, there's something in this album for you. Now, it's available all over for free on the internet, but you may not have heard of it before, so I thought I would go ahead and play it right here on our show. So enjoy this wonderful piece from 1955, Willow Weep for Me.
pardon me while I have a moment. Oh, how lovely that is. Oh, that is such a beautiful, beautiful piece. I think I read somewhere that Clifford Brown only left us four years of recording. I mean, he did die very young. And what a tragedy, because he was fantastic. And uh, like I said, you can get the whole album out on the internet. I'll put a link to the album in my show notes. But definitely give it a listen, because there's other really great songs on that album. One of them that I considered my personal anthem growing up, a song called Portrait of Jenny. Okay, well, it's getting late. Our eyes are getting very heavy. So you know what that means. It's time to step into the Vintage Century Reading Room. Close your eyes Rest your head on my shoulder and sleep Close your eyes And I will close mine Close your eyes Let's pretend that we're both counting sheep Close your eyes Oh, this is divine music love Something dreamy for dancing while we're here romancing It's love's holiday And love will be our guide Close your eyes When you open them, dear I'll be near by your side So won't you close your eyes? As you recall, we're reading F. Scott Fitzgerald's story, The Cut Glass Bowl. Remember that this story is following the married life of Evelyn and Harold Piper, and the bowl of the title was a wedding gift given to the Pipers. And as we follow their lives, that bowl keeps factoring into the drama in one way or another. When we left off, the Pipers were having a dinner party. Their fortunes have taken a little bit of a turn. Harold informs Evelyn that their firm, Piper Brothers, was being merged with Clarence Ahern Company to form the Ahern Piper Company. So it was unclear if this was a merger or a takeover, um, but there was something about it that Evelyn didn't like. So Fitzgerald informs us that to Evelyn, this seemed like taking a step down in the world. The Aherns are coming to this dinner party. And if you recall, Evelyn is just not really into this. So what role does the bowl play here? Well, it's in this bowl that they will be serving their special alcoholic punch. Now, remember that Evelyn didn't want to use this bowl. This cut glass bowl is enormous, right? She didn't want a big, enormous bowl full of this punch because she knew that things could get out of hand if people were drinking too much. She wanted to use a much smaller bowl, but Harold insisted. He probably wanted to make some kind of fancy impression on this Ahern fellow, his new business partner, and so he insisted on the big cut glass bowl. Now, here's the last paragraph that we read last time. So he and Evelyn are sort of having a little bit of a wrestling match about this bowl. Harold grasped the smaller bowl to lift it back. Instantly, her hands were on it, holding it down. There was a momentary struggle, and then with a little exasperated grunt, he raised his side, 
slipped it from her fingers, and carried it to the sideboard. She looked at him and tried to make her expression contemptuous, but he only laughed. Acknowledging her defeat, but disclaiming all future interest in the punch, she left the room. And now we're ready for part three of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Cut Glass Bowl. Let's pick back up where we left off at the dinner party. At 7.30, her cheeks glowing and her high-piled hair gleaming with a suspicion of brilliantine, Evelyn descended the stairs. Mrs. Ahern, a little woman, concealing a slight nervousness under red hair and an extreme empire gown, greeted her volubly. Evelyn disliked her on the spot, but the husband she rather approved of. He had keen blue eyes and a natural gift of pleasing people that might have made him socially had he not so obviously committed the blunder of marrying too early in his career. I'm glad to know Piper's wife, he said simply. It looks as though her husband and I are going to be seeing a lot of each other in the future. She bowed, smiled graciously, and turned to greet the others. Milton Piper, Harold's quiet, unassertive younger brother, the two Lowrys, Jesse and Tom, Irene, her own unmarried sister, and finally Joe Ambler, a confirmed bachelor and Irene's perennial beau. Harold led the way into dinner. We're having a punch this evening, he announced jovially. Evelyn saw that he had already sampled his concoction, so there won't be any cocktails except the punch. It's my wife's greatest achievement, Mrs. Ahern. She'll give you the recipe if you want it. But owing to a slight... He caught his wife's eye and paused. Well, to a slight indisposition, I'm responsible for this batch. Here's how. All through dinner there was punch, and Evelyn, noticing that Ahern and Milton Piper and all the women were shaking their heads negatively at the maid, knew she had been right about the bowl. It was still half full. She resolved to caution Harold directly afterward, but when the women left the table, Mrs. Ahern cornered her, and she found herself talking cities and dressmakers with a polite show of interest. "'We've moved around a lot,' chattered Mrs. Ahern, her red head nodding violently. "'Oh, yes, we've never stayed so long in a town before, but I do hope we're here for good. I like it here, don't you?' Well, you see, I've always lived here, so naturally. Oh, yes, that's true, said Mrs. Ahern and laughed. Clarence always used to tell me that he had to have a wife that he could come home to and say, well, we're going to Chicago tomorrow, so pack up. I got so I never expected to live anywhere. She laughed her little laugh again. Evelyn suspected that it was her society laugh. Well, your husband is a very able man, I imagine. Oh, yes, Mrs. Ahern assured her eagerly. He's brainy, Clarence is. Ideas and enthusiasm, you know. Finds out what he wants and then goes and gets it. Evelyn nodded. She was wondering if the men were still drinking punch back in the dining room. Mrs. Ahern's history kept unfolding jerkily, but Evelyn had ceased to listen. The first odor of masked cigars began to drift in. It wasn't really a large house, she reflected. On an evening like this, the library sometimes grew blue with smoke, and the next day one had to leave the windows open for hours to air the heavy staleness out of the curtains. Well, perhaps this partnership might... Hmm, she began to speculate on a new house. 
Mrs. Ahern's voice drifted in on her. I really would like the recipe if you have it written down somewhere. Then there was a sound of chairs in the dining room, and the men strolled in. Evelyn saw at once that her worst fears were realized. Harold's face was flushed, and his words ran together at the ends of sentences, while Tom Lowry lurched when he walked, and he narrowly missed Irene's lap when he tried to sink onto the couch beside her. He sat there blinking dazedly at the company. Evelyn found herself blinking back at him, but she saw no humor in it at all. Joe Ambler was smiling contentedly and purring on his cigar. Only Ahern and Milton Piper seemed unaffected. It's a pretty fine town, Ahern, said Ambler. You'll find that. Oh, I have found it so, said Ahern pleasantly. You find it more, Ahern, said Harold, nodding emphatically. If I've anything to do with it. He soared into a eulogy of the city, and Evelyn wondered uncomfortably if it bored everyone else as much as it bored her. Apparently not. They were all listening attentively. Evelyn broke in at the first gap. Where have you been living, Mr. Ahern? she asked interestedly. Then she remembered that Mrs. Ahern had already told her. But it didn't matter. Harold mustn't talk so much. He was such an ass when he'd been drinking. But he plopped directly back in. Tell you, Ahern, first you want to get a house up there on the hill. Get Sternhouse or Ridgeway House. Want to have it so people say, there's Ahern House. Solid, you know, that's the effect it gives. Evelyn flushed. This didn't sound right at all. Still, Ahern didn't seem to notice anything amiss, and he only nodded gravely. Have you been looking? But her words trailed off as unheard as Harold's voice boomed on. Get a house. That's the start. Then you get to know people. Yes, it's a snobbish town at first toward outsiders, but not long after people know you, you know, people like you. He indicated Ahern and his wife with a sweeping gesture. All right, cordial as anything, once they can get past, past. Evelyn looked appealingly at her brother-in-law, but before he could intercede, a thick mumble had come crowding out of Tom Lowry, hindered by the dead cigar which he gripped firmly with his teeth. What? demanded Harold earnestly. Resignedly and with difficulty, Tom removed his cigar. That is, he removed part of it and then blew the remainder with a what sound across the room where it landed liquidly and limply in Mrs. Ahern's lap. Beg pardon, he mumbled, and rose with a vague intention of going after it. Milton's hand on his coat collapsed him in time, and Mrs. Ahern not ungracefully flounced the tobacco from her skirt to the floor, never once looking at it. I was just saying, before that happened, I was saying that I heard all about the truth about the country club matter. Milton Milton leaned in and whispered something to him. Let me alone, he said petulantly. I know what I'm doing. That's what they came for. Evelyn sat there in a panic, trying to make her mouth form words. She saw her sister's sardonic expression and Mrs. Ahern's face turning a vivid red. Ahern was looking down at his watch chain, fingering it. I heard they've been keeping you out. I heard they've been keeping you out, but I can fix the whole thing up. I can fix it. 
Milton Piper rose suddenly and awkwardly to his feet. In a second, everyone was standing tensely, and Milton was saying something very hurriedly about having to go early, and the Aherns were listening with eager intentness. Then Mrs. Ahern swallowed and turned with a forced smile toward Jessie. Evelyn saw Tom lurch forward and put his hand on Ahern's shoulder. Suddenly, she was listening to a new, anxious voice at her elbow, and turning, found Hilda, the second maid. Please, Miss Piper, I think Julie got her hand poisoned. It's all swole up, and her cheeks are hot, and she's moaning, and she's groaning. Julie is, Evelyn asked sharply. The the party suddenly receded. She turned quickly, sought with her eyes for Mrs. Ahern, and slipped toward her. If you'll excuse me, Mrs. She had momentarily forgotten her name, but she went right on. My little girl, she's been taken sick. I'll be down when I can. She turned and ran quickly up the stairs, retaining a confused picture of rays of cigar smoke and a loud discussion in the center of the room that seemed to be developing into an argument. Switching on the light in the nursery, she found Julie tossing feverishly and giving out odd little cries. She put her hand against the cheeks. They were burning. With an exclamation, she followed the arm down under the cover until she found the hand. Hilda was right. The whole thumb was swollen to the wrist, and in the center was a little inflamed sore. It was blood poisoning. Her mind cried in terror. The bandage had come off. The cut she had gotten had something in it. She'd cut it at three o'clock. It was now nearly eleven, eight hours. Well, blood poisoning couldn't possibly develop so soon, could it? She rushed to the phone. Dr. Martin across the street was out. Dr. Falke, their family physician, didn't answer. She racked her brains and in desperation called her throat specialist. She bit her lip furiously while he looked up the numbers of two physicians. During that interminable moment, she thought she heard loud voices downstairs, but she seemed to be in another world now. After 15 minutes, she located a physician who sounded angry and sulky at being called out of bed. She ran back to the nursery and, looking at the hand, found it was somewhat more swollen. Oh, God, she cried, and kneeling beside the bed began smoothing back Julie's hair over and over. With a vague idea of getting some hot water, she rose and stared toward the door, but the lace of her dress caught in the bed rail and she fell forward on her hands and knees. She struggled up and jerked frantically at the lace. The bed moved and Julie groaned. Then more quietly, but with suddenly fumbling fingers, she found the pleat in front, tore the whole pannier completely off, and rushed from the room. Out in the hall, she heard a single loud, insistent voice, but as she reached the head of the stairs, it ceased, and an outer door banged. The music room came into view, and only Harold and Milton were there, the former leaning against a chair, his face very pale, his collar open, and his mouth moving loosely. What's the matter? There was a little trouble. Then Harold saw her and, straightening up with an effort, began to speak. Insulting my own cousin in my own house. He was insulting my own cousin. Tom had trouble with Ahern, and Harold interfered, said Milton. My lord, Milton, cried Evelyn. Couldn't you have done something? I tried. I... Julie's sick, she interrupted. She's poisoned herself. Get him to bed if you can. Harold looked up. Julie's sick? Paying no attention, Evelyn brushed by through the dining room, catching sight with a burst of horror, 
the big punch bowl still on the table, the liquid from melted ice in its bottom. She heard steps on the front stairs. It was Milton helping Harold up, and then a mumble. Why, Julie's all right. Don't let him go into the nursery, she shouted. The hours blurred into a nightmare. The doctor arrived just before midnight, and within a half hour, he had lanced the wound. He left at two, and after giving her the addresses of two nurses to call up in the morning and promising to return at half past six, he told her it was blood poisoning. At four, leaving Hilda by the bedside, Evelyn went to her room and, slipping with the shutter out of her evening dress, kicked it to the corner. She put on a house dress and returned to the nursery while Hilda went to make coffee. Not until noon could she bring herself to look into Harold's room, but when she did, it was to find him awake and staring very miserably at the ceiling. He turned bloodshot, hollow eyes upon her. For a minute, she hated him. She couldn't speak. A husky voice came from the bed. What time is it? Noon. Well, I made a damn fool. It doesn't matter, she said sharply. Julie's got blood poisoning. They may, well, they think she may have to lose her hand. What? She cut herself on that, that bowl. Last night? Oh, what does it matter? She's got blood poisoning. Can't you hear? He looked at her bewildered, sat halfway up in bed. I'll get dressed, he said. Her anger subsided, and a great wave of weariness and pity for him rolled over her. After all, it was his trouble, too. Yes, she answered listlessly. I suppose you'd better. Well, we had quite the drama at that dinner party, didn't we? Sounded like there was something going on with the country club. Maybe some discrimination there. Maybe they didn't want to let the Aherns into the country club. But there was also some drunkenness. There was some insults that were bandied about. A fight broke out. This is not a very promising start to a new business partnership. But then, of course, we've got the tragedy of Julie's little hand. And all of it, of course, had to do with that cursed cut glass bowl. How will this story ever wrap up? Well, we shall find out the next time in the Vintage Century Reading Room when we read the conclusion of F. Scott Fitzgerald's story. Well, that just about does it for tonight's show. I'm so glad you joined me tonight. I know all that old school stuff was weird and maybe it wasn't all that interesting, but Oh, I don't know. Maybe our information that we provide on this show is never all that interesting. I don't know. But uh, anyway, I'm glad you decided to hang around anyway. Well, I want you to have a really nice week. And remember that Friday will be here before we know it. When it's all over, I hope you'll come back and see me and Olive. We'll be right here. Bye for now. (laughs) 